0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Uh, Doing pretty good, John. How about yourself?
1: Oh, not too bad. I suppose that by this time I will probably be recovering from Christmas food coma, (laughs) but we're recording this a little bit early. (laughs)
0: I know. I suppose that by this time I will be frozen because we're going to Iowa to see family for Christmas. And I think the high on Christmas is supposed to be 17 or something. And that's not Celsius. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, there was a discussion this week about the, the temperature here, because about the time I'm traveling, uh, it's going to be getting down into the minus 10 Fahrenheit range or so here.
0: <laughs> and-
1: <laughs> yeah that's and a, i had cool. uh, i had texted this to a coworker and i said minus 10 deg f which is the programming <laughs> notation to touch those units and i said i realized that programming with units has forever broken me
0: <laughs> clearly f, that's nice i usually yeah. say that just because i can't spell fahrenheit but you know <laughs>
1: N- nobody can
0: <laughs> so true <laughs>
1: Well, before we go any further down that rabbit hole, I think (laughs) we should go ahead and introduce our guest for this week. We're really excited to be talking to Dr. Helen Yanishevsky about the recent earthquake in Delaware, seismology, and life as a new postdoc.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for being on. Um, I can't wait to talk about this, but I know that John won't let me do that until uh, we talk to you first about... um, you know who you
2: yeah. are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So if you could tell us uh how you got into to geoscience and your background and what you're doing now.
2: <laughs> well, how I got into geoscience started as a three-year-old obsessed with dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh so eventually I moved away from dinosaurs, decided I liked physics and math. Um, so pretty much straight shot it undergrad double majored in geology and physics and wound up in seismology for graduate school. Nothing uh, exciting and deviating from that (laughs) path for the most part.
1: (laughs) So where did you do your graduate work?
2: Uh, I did my graduate work at uh, Columbia University um, with Lamont-Darty Earth Observatory, which is the research institution associated with them. Uh, And I did it in seismology. And I just got my uh, PhD a little bit over a month ago.
0: Yay, Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my scars haven't healed yet. So, you know. <laughs> okay. So after you got your PhD and everything, what is your main research focus now? Still seismology, I'm guessing.
2: Yes. Still seismology. Um, and for my PhD, I do I do seismic imaging for the most part. Um, so that means using seismic waves to basically see inside the earth and Tell uh, what sort of seismic structures are there and then use that to infer material properties of the earth. Um, and so for my PhD, I did this mostly in the Cascadia subduction zone, which people probably know is one of the highest risks for a large earthquake in the United States. So we're interested in better understanding um, what the structure is there. So Kind of, we can understand subduction zones in general, but also maybe say something specifically about that subduction and how it relates to hazards. Um, and yeah, for post PhD life, I think I'm still at the moment picking up the pieces a little bit and figuring out what's next. Um, still very interested in subduction zones. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, kind of interesting questions coming out of my PhD research that I want to pursue a bit more, but. Yeah, it's still a little bit new, so figuring that all out. <laughs> um, so
1: when you say you're looking at the Cascadia subduction zone, I'm curious, is the Cascadia subduction zone a relatively typical model for a subduction zone? Or are there lots of weird quirks about it? Is, or is this a place that we're trying to learn about so we can generalize?
2: It's generally weird, Um, and so actually people didn't recognize that it posed a hazard um, in the traditional way subduction zones do um, until a few decades ago, because unlike, say, Japan uh, or New Zealand... um, where small earthquakes are happening very, very frequently, and then occasionally you get a much bigger one, for example, the 9.0 that happened in 2011 uh, in Japan, Cascadia, for the most part, has relatively no seismicity, um, meaning no small earthquakes happening on a regular basis. Uh, And that puzzled people for a while, and people didn't really understand that there actually was a large earthquake risk in that area um, until they figured out that a earthquake and tsunami happened in I believe January 26th or seventh of 1700
0: <laughs> yes I, I teach that um, I teach that whole story in uh, one of the classes I teach, because it's really cool, because up there, there's the geologic evidence that it happened. But then, you know, earthquakes cause tsunamis. And so you can go to Japan and find the actual written evidence that it happened. I think that's a really great story.
2: Yeah, it is an awesome story.
1: <laughs> so when you're looking at the Cascadia subduction zone, you said that you mainly do seismic imaging. Was this something that you got to go out and participate in the data collection for, or was this something that there was this big chunk of data and you had to process it or some combination?
2: Yeah, so a combination. So I've fused I've multiple different types of data um, from the Cascadia subduction zone. And one of the types, I actually did get to go out and do some field work. Um, and that involves putting out a line of 15 seismometers, uh, In the Greece harbor region, which is just south of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Um, And so we were out there for about a week, put out seismometers, uh, involved driving on logging roads, basically praying that our car wasn't going to completely be torn to pieces by branches. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... uh, We then also were out on the Langseth uh, after that for a month, which is a research vessel. Um, So the ship was out in the Pacific Ocean um, generating seismic sources that were then recorded by the instruments that we had just deployed on shore. So I used part of that data for my thesis. Um, The rest was a big open community experiment uh, called the Cascadia Initiative that deployed um, seismometers on the ocean floor over the course of four years. And that was a open data set for anyone in the community to use. Um, and so that was the other big part of my thesis.
1: And so when you're looking at the open data set, was that the active source part, or were you looking at teleseismic earthquakes as sources?
2: The open source were all passive source instruments, uh, meaning that you just put them out there and they record. I mean, I guess technically the active source instruments do that as well, Um, but they're designed to record something specific, passive, just kind of sit there. and I was using both teleseismic and ambient noise data, which is kind of the just general noise of the earth. <laughs>
0: uh, so how far out were these instruments then from the coast?
2: Uh, so the instruments were going all the way to the Wanda Fuga Ridge. So about, mm, mm-hmm. let me see if I can do math, about maybe 500 <laughs> or so kilometers Um, Oh, okay. But one of the points of that whole deployment was um, to actually put instruments all the way from the ridge where the plate is created, cover the entire tectonic plate through subduction and going beyond the volcanic arc. So we actually have a complete view of an entire plate system from its creation at the ridge to its uh, descent into the mantle at the subduction zone.
0: Oh, excellent. Um, so I know when I draw subduction zones, I'm sure that it is completely incorrect. So what is the angle of subduction on the Cascadia <laughs> subduction zone?
2: It depends. I mean, well, in Cascadia, it's relatively shallow. Um, so I think the at least uh, for the areas that I think about, 10 to 15 degrees is roughly about how steeply it's dipping. Um, and yeah, what happens to plates at depth is still a mystery. So yeah. <laughs>
0: don't tell my intro don't class me. that.
2: <laughs>
0: they I just think took what an you exam. need, Tanner,
1: is a much longer, but shorter chalkboard.
0: Right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> they could use this against me. <laughs> well, we don't really
1: know. <laughs> oh, definitely. So I'm curious. Being a a tools oriented person, what were some of the tools that you used to do your research? Was a lot of it in you know MATLAB or seismic processing packages uh, like Petrel or Yeah, what did so you
2: use? pretty much all of my stuff was in MATLAB. <laughs> Nothing uh, too exciting, um, and. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's just so many uh, tools that the community are making available that are now open source. It seems like a lot of people in this community um, f- do use MATLAB, and um, people are pretty open with sharing um, software, and there's a lot of automated packages now. so. Yeah, pretty much all of my stuff was in MATLAB. I'm actually making uh, another automated package available in the next coming months, depending on publication status of things. So contributing to that.
1: <laughs> awesome. So I, I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of open source initiative because it's it seems to be spreading through many fields and seismology is a, a perfect place for it because Everybody had written yep. pickers or yep. filters. Yep. <laughs> so it makes sense to have something that's uh, relatively standard. Yeah. But so what, what about some of the other activities that you did during your PhD? Because I know we actually had the occasion to cross paths. Yep. Uh, not through seismology, <laughs> but through... Uh, well, I guess an outreach <laughs> or seismology event. I don't know what he'd classify it.
2: Seismology student workshop.
1: <laughs> uh, it's in the name.
2: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, uh, that's something I think you've talked about on this before, um, And that is, I believe, where we met. Uh, And yeah, that was something that was hosted at Lamont um, for five years. I guess this year, now it's going into its sixth year. Uh, And I was part of the organizing committee for that for three years. And it's basically a Student run initiative um, where we have a workshop. It's for students, run by students, only for students. We don't allow any professors, faculty, no postdocs allowed. So I unfortunately can no longer go to this. Makes me so (laughs) sad. Um, And yeah, people just got to present their work over a couple of days um, and people got to ask questions without, you know, feeling like they had faculty they needed to impress or you know something like that uh and yeah, I think it was one of the best networking events for students in seismology and geophysics, um, certainly that I had been to. Um, and of course, I'm biased. Um, but we we heard a, a lot of that from students, that it was you know, the first place they actually got to meet people and talk with people outside of their own institution. Um, and yeah, so like I said, it's going into its sixth year and hopefully we'll continue. <laughs> wow. It that's sad.
1: An to amazing just, workshop.
0: That's sad to just see your little baby out there and you can't go back to it or anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. Yeah.
2: It's, it's kind of horrible too. Cause they haven't taken me off the uh, admin email yet. So I get notifications Aww. for emails. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> just
0: rubbing salt in the wound right
2: there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, and one of the things that, you all did in this workshop that I thought was amazing was at the beginning, everybody had to go up and write some things they were interested in on the board as they introduced themselves and then circle it if it was already up there. And man, the hotspots really jumped out.
2: Yep. Do you know that was my idea to do that?
1: (laughs) I did not. That was an awesome idea.
2: Yep. (laughs) That was probably the smartest thing I've done in my entire life.
0: <laughs> so when you said the hot spots really jumped out i mean did you mean actual hot spots john or you know, <laughs> just just checking no,
1: i i think you know well ambient noise tomography was always uh one that had a lot of circles and underlines around it yep Had uh, uh, let's see Specfim and yeah. some of the modeling tools. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of common ground, and it really helped people focus in, yeah. on some great discussions. I thought
2: it was always fun too to watch people draw links between the different words, and all of a sudden things would start connecting that you never would expect that, to connect. That was it was great.
1: If seismology were a startup, that's
2: yeah, <laughs> that's the whiteboard.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: but also we actually wanted to talk to you about the recent earthquake that was in Delaware, Yeah, because I happened to see on Twitter that you were part of the response team for this, (laughs) and we had gotten some questions about it. So (laughs) I guess we should start out with the fact that there was an earthquake, right?
2: (laughs) Yes, there was an earthquake in Delaware, magnitude 4.1.
1: Yeah. And so this was back on November 30th yep. and it was pretty close to Dover, if anybody mm-hmm. knows where that is. That's actually the only place in Delaware I've ever been, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's I, not I, somewhere that we normally think about earthquakes.
2: No, it's not. It is definitely not. And it's interesting too, because um, if you look at Earthquakes on the East Coast, they're rare, but there are places where they are more common than others. Um, So kind of that belt between um, Tennessee and North Carolina, and there's some kind of along the border with uh, um, like New York State, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Canada. There's a line going along there near the St. Lawrence River, but this one is pretty unique. Um, It Stuff does not normally happen in Delaware when it comes to earthquakes.
0: So if this is one of those unique places, then what what do we know about it? Like, what what happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, most earthquakes on the East Coast have something to do with, you know, past tectonics, right? The, the difference between an earthquake that happens on the East Coast and an earthquake that, say, happens on the West Coast is the West Coast has these current active plate boundaries that are moving at a relatively faster rate than you know anything on the East Coast. The East Coast doesn't have an active plate boundary at it. That doesn't mean that there aren't still um, stresses globally that affect um, the Earth's plates and those tr- stresses transmit to passive plate boundaries like the East Coast where this earthquake happened it just takes a lot longer for that stress to build up and actually cause an earthquake. Um, and so usually these things happen, um, somewhere along some fault structure or some other odd structure, um, that is left from the past tectonic history of North America. Um, but a lot of that stuff is so old that we don't necessarily, Know where all those structures are and know where all the faults are, and really have a good understanding for why a one off earthquake in the middle of a plate would actually happen. So, you know, we, we have some educated guesses, but overall, it's still kind of a mystery, particularly for this specific earthquake.
0: If you're part of the seismic response team, does that entail actually going out and looking at damage and things like that or just trying to decide where to deploy more instruments? What does that entail?
2: So this was this was the first time I was part of a like rapid response team um, for an earthquake, <laughs> and actually before I forget, I also just want to take a moment to acknowledge everyone that was involved in it. Um, so I went out with a part of a um, crew from DTM, which stands for the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism, that is part of the Carnegie Institution for Science, and that's where I'm doing my postdoc, and so. We went out there with seismometers. Um, also, someone from the USGS was out there, University of Maryland, and we were all out on the Delaware side. And then uh, people from Lamont and uh, Lehigh University were out on the New Jersey side. So there were five institutions all involved with this, and I think total of about twelve or so people, mix of myself. myself It was kind of a remarkable effort that this got organized (laughs) within like, you know, four or five hours after the earthquake happened and we were out there the next day. (laughs) Um, But so what we all were doing was installing seismometers. So the earthquake was pretty small. Um, There was no uh, real major damage uh, from it. but what we wanted to do was get seismometers out as close to the epicenter as fast as possible to start recording aftershocks. Um, and so since it was a magnitude four, for the most part, we wouldn't expect aftershocks much greater than a three. A lot of them would be you know, on the order of magnitudes ones and twos. So you really need seismometers as close to the earthquake as possible to actually be able to detect them. Um, And the existing network that was there really was pretty sparse where the earthquake happens. So we wanted to um, basically get out there as fast as possible so we could better characterize this set of aftershocks.
1: And so this is a place where I could see it being pretty difficult to site stations. Was that something (laughs) that you ran into?
2: So I... I'm still a bit mystified of how the sighting process actually happened. I was given a map <laughs> the morning. Um, <laughs> and, and we were all given a map. And I think um, for the most part, someone just went on Google Maps and picked out a rough estimate of good locations, and then we were (laughs) just told to try to hit within a mile of that location and just look for any suitable property. Um, But we actually, we didn't, you know, normally when you go out and do field work, um, you've called people beforehand, you've worked out permits beforehand, you know where you're going to install this instrument. Um, This, me and my field partner, Diana Roman, um... Me, we, we just went out and we're driving around trying to um, find people that, you know, had farms and would be friendly enough to allow us to put a seismometer on their farm for a month um, or some something like that. Uh, but yeah, we were knocking on doors essentially. <laughs> That was exactly my job
0: after the Prague earthquake um happened here in Oklahoma <laughs> and they're like grad students you guys go find some people and I'm like oh, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> and it was just cold calling i'm like i'm not selling anything yeah. i just want to put this really expensive seismic equipment on your front porch yeah. is that okay <laughs>
1: well, so yeah Shannon, I, I, it, I, I, at least the grad students were knocking on the doors it was like undergrad right. students here are shovels <laughs>
0: That is true. Okay. I totally got the better job. You're correct.
1: (laughs) 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 So did you find that people were pretty willing to uh, let you put this equipment on their land?
2: Yeah, actually, everyone we talked to, I mean, we personally only talked with two people because we only installed two instruments and then there were other, you know, the other groups. I don't know what their experiences were, um, but the people that we talked to were very receptive. Um, and, you know, as soon as we talked with them about the earthquake, they, you know, described their experience to us, whether or not they heard or felt it. A lot of them heard it, not felt it, actually. Um and yeah, we they were very receptive and I think overall for the whole team people were very receptive.
0: I thought it was a weird thing about earthquakes and after experiencing all these in Oklahoma over the last, you know, 6 or 7 years, like you hear them a lot. A lot. Very frequently. Yeah.
2: So I actually have never been in an earthquake still and never have what? felt an earthquake, so I can't <laughs> I can't speak from experience on that, but
0: <laughs> oh man, I don't know if like I don't know what to think now. <laughs> well, they sound really <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So you put these instruments out, and you said they're going to stay out for roughly a month?
2: Yeah, so depending on people's schedules, they either will be about to be pulled out of the ground or have just been pulled out of the ground. Um, But yeah, they'll be out there. So the goal was um, to put them out there. And then if anything more interesting happened, for example, if all of a sudden there was a magnitude five, then we would have kept them out longer. Um, But so far, it seems like it, you know, nothing out of the ordinary is happening. Uh, So I think the plan is to pull them out sometime within um, close to the end of the uh, December. And then we'll look at aftershocks. Um, actually we got data back, preliminary data back from one of the stations already, and it is recording very small aftershocks. So that is pretty exciting. Um, so we'll hopefully be able to use that data to better understand what the structure of the fault that actually caused the initial earthquake was.
0: Do you guys have any idea what that fault looks like now, just with the preliminary data?
2: No. Um, so as far as we know, the, There was only one station that was recording um, the aftershocks. And so I'm not sure how much detail we're going to be able to do with locations with one station. Um, (laughs) However, however, that um, there are additional stations that we have not pulled data from yet. So it's possible that there are still other stations recording the events that we just don't know about yet.
1: So... Do we know what the slip mechanism of the main shock was?
2: Um, it was kind of weird. It was an oblique thrust, at least according to USGS. Um, but yeah, it was it was a little bit odd. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Hmm. That, that is pretty strange. So well, once you get all these aftershocks recorded on your stations and you go out uh, about the time this airs probably and pick them up and download all this data, what process are you going to put that data through to actually learn about the structure of the fault?
2: I think that, I mean, the first step is just f- seeing what seismicity we have. And so, um, you know, there are um, kind of cross correlation algorithms and other sorts of, um, things, <laughs> template matching, things like that, uh, that you can do to just find earthquakes and characterize them. Um, And so first things first is just, you know, going to be running all this data through something like that. Um, And then, yeah, I think it's going to depend on the quality of data we have and how much we have to see uh, how much can be done with that. I mean, also, to be perfectly frank, this is very much outside of my wheelhouse. As I started off saying I do seismic imaging, I have never had this experience with Aftershock (laughs) data before. Um, So it's, it's definitely a learning process for me, too.
1: So is this data that you'll be working on, or is this data that's going to get handed off to uh, some new PhD or master's student?
2: You know, I don't think anyone at the moment quite knows who's going to be working on it. <laughs> at least at least if, if if people have figured that out, I'm not aware of it yet. But definitely the morning <laughs> when we deployed the instruments, we really, you know, had no, the the plan was getting the instruments out. And, you know, that was the priority. And the priority was to get them out as soon as possible, get the data. And then, you know, everything else will fall into place afterwards. Um, So I'm not sure, exactly. As again, everyone's, you know, we did this right before AGU and that also makes everyone a bit crazier than usual. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be looking on the uh, earth science uh, job board um, here shortly for that uh, call for a PhD student. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Interested in working on a magnitude (laughs) 4.1?
0: In Delaware? Yeah. (laughs) Usually people have Uh, too much data. I think that this might be the opposite case.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, It will be interesting, though, given that the TA just went through the East Coast, so transportable array, um, and we have all this new... um, Seismic imaging that's being done on the East Coast with a quantity of data that's never been seen before. Um, it'll be kind of interesting to compare new information we get about structures in the region to the fact that this earthquake happened, and you know, see if there'd be any interesting comparisons there.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's basically what's happened in Oklahoma. It's like no one paid attention until we had this big earthquake, and now we're instrumented out the wazoo. you know, <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, look at all this. <laughs> look at all this. <laughs>
1: Well, so I was, you've deployed seismometers on land before, as you had described, but was there anything about the process, either the first time you did it or now that was surprising sort of in the, the, how the sausage is made process of how seismic data gets collected?
2: Um, I mean, I think for this deployment in particular, just how fast it all was. And also, um, it felt very real. You know, normally you're there going out as a seismologist and you're deploying this stuff and you're working on some, you know, broad problem that, you know, people have been thinking out for a really long time. This was, oh, my God, something happened. We need to get out, get it in fast and go. Um, And you know, it was kind of phenomenal seeing everyone work together and plan it and the whole thing get up off, off the ground and organized. So, yeah, and it felt very real. like, oh, my God, there, an earthquake just happened and we need to go do something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess like, uh, you know, storm chasers and us having a meteorology yeah. background, yeah. you know, we're used to that kind of stuff. But yeah, earthquakes are a little, little
1: different.
2: Little yeah. different. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the predictability aspect is a little
2: (laughs) (laughs) little Mm -hmm. less as
1: well right now. Yep. So so one more general question that I I always am interested in talking to people about is what are some of the things in your field, technology-wise or advance-wise, that have you most excited right now?
2: Oh, boy. Um, I mean... I am a nerd for seismic data that comes from the oceans. So, And I know this is a bit um, uh, maybe specific, but just where ocean bottom seismometer data is going, more things that we can put on the seafloor, development of GPS stations that can go on the seafloor long term. i I want to see those out and I want to see them in subduction zones where we can actually start measuring uh, what's happening, where earthquakes are actually going to happen and where dam- where where waves that will damage um, population centers actually originate from. Um, and yeah, I just it's it's unfortunately you know a very difficult environment to work in, obviously, because you go and you typically deploy these instruments and drop them off the side of a ship or, um, you know, you need to go down with something much more expensive, like an ROV. Um, and it's, it's very expensive environment to work in clearly. Um, but there's just so much that, we don't know because it's a challenging environment to work in, um, both about general earth tectonics and also about the ocean itself. Um, So I think there's a wealth of information in the ocean bottom seismometer data that we already have, and there's a wealth of information to be gotten with new instrument developments there.
1: Definitely. We had a listener actually send in a submission for Fun Paper Friday, which might turn into a whole show. It was a recent paper in JGR that I'm sure you've seen about uh, normal modes on OBSs.
2: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That I've, was amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Helen, is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Um, I don't think so. Maybe I'll just say if there are any seismology students listening, definitely apply for the upcoming seismology student workshop, even though I won't be there, but it is totally awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> good plug. Good plug. That'll, that'll keep you on the admin list for you. Yeah.
0: Year.
1: Uh, <laughs> so. Well, without further ado in that case, I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: So this week's Fun Paper is actually more of an EO's article.
0: Well, I appreciated that, I will say, because having finals just wrapped up, if I have to read another paper, especially one that's poorly written, I'm going to get really crazy. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: uh. <laughs> so it's the weight of the water dropped by Hurricane Harvey flexed Earth's crust, which I cannot think of a more perfect paper to talk about with a seismologist
0: yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know when this when this first got tweeted um right after Harvey and we were talking about it on the show, you were going crazy about it, John, so yes, it'll be interesting to hear both of you get super nerdy about this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, so the, the the premise of this paper, right, is that Harvey dumped an incredible amount of precipitation, something like 51 inches in Houston. And that's a lot of weight. In fact, they calculated somewhere in here uh, something that sounded like a back to the future number.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 127 gigatons.
1: Great, Scott.
0: Oh, you're welcome for setting that one up. Um, so I guess this is sort of one of those things that it's no surprise when you think about it, but it's super awesome that we have the instrumentation to actually show that this is happening, right? Because this is from GPS stations that were set out that you can actually see the deflection in the crust just due to this.
1: Yeah, yeah. and it's non-trivial. <laughs>
0: Uh, exactly um so they said they had 477 gps monitors uh that have this extremely fine scale resolution down to a millimeter which is what makes this possible because they were talking about before gps technology the errors involved would be greater than the deflection so it's nothing that you would see but obviously with these numbers which are you know pretty big you know in the two centimeter ish range that's uh you're going to actually see that for real. (laughs) And this was all around the Houston area.
2: Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. And I, I mean, I also am just, I I nerd out whenever people use solid earth, uh, techniques like GPS or seismometer to do kind of not necessarily solid earth focused things like this, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, intersection between an atmospheric science phenomenon and, uh, using these traditional, uh, measurements that people wouldn't use for this type of stuff. I think it's super cool.
0: It's all the same all physics, the same- just different time. scales. Yep. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I I'm actually pretty curious. I didn't see anybody talk about this, but I would imagine that you can see ground tilt on yeah. nearby seismic stations. Yeah,
2: too. and so that was actually one of the reasons why I kind of was super happy when I saw this was what you chose, um, because as you may or may not know, tilt is a big problem on ocean bottom seismometers, and so I deal with seismic instruments tilting all the time, and I <laughs> would be I, I would be very curious to just like run nearby instruments through the same types of algorithms I use for tilt on ocean bottom seismometers and see if it's a signal that you could detect or not.
0: I didn't even think about that. Like a bowling ball on the piece of plastic, you know, flexing space time. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's pretty awesome. (laughs) I'm not sure like how much additional information you could get out of it. I mean, you probably could. I haven't thought about it enough, but yeah, it's it seems like it would be something that you could see.
0: <laughs> I think that so it the, definitely goes into just the fact the signal is there is a really cool thing. <laughs> like it goes into that <laughs> hopper of science, right? Like, check, that's super neat.
1: <laughs> well, at, at the risk of having somebody from UNAVCO send hate mail, I'm guessing <laughs> that it, it might be more possible to get a larger number of seismic station data than GPS data in this region.
2: Yeah, I don't, don't know though. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with that region.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a decent amount of instrumentation out. Just a lot of it purely because of exploration activities.
2: Yeah, but that night isn't not is not necessarily the right type of instrumentation to use for this signal. Because if they're all um, short period instruments, I, I, I'm I'm not totally sure, but at least. The instruments where you normally see that sort of tilt signal are broadband, I think. But I've never tried to do it on a short period. So I could be wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how well it would work with short period either. Probably not. But it'd be something super interesting to look at and certainly something that uh, could be done. But there's only so many hours, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh,
0: exactly. So um, they, they described
1: the Earth's crust in this as like a, like a trampoline because we saw it go down by this nearly two centimeters and then rebound just in days.
2: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, it's just so fascinating. I mean, I wonder if you could get... Um, I mean, that must tell you something about how this soil is behave, uh, behaving and things like that. And yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's what
0: I was thinking, because we were just uh, interviewing hydrogeology candidates. And so that's not something I ever really think too much about, especially, you know, quaternary processes are really too young for me to care about. Um, <laughs> but so they're saying that by three, it was three weeks after the rain ended, all the instruments showed that um, everything had either drained away or evaporated. And so surely there's some type of modeling that you could do based on these, just these data, as opposed to, you know, having hydrologic models out there or hydrologic instruments out there. Um, Yeah. That seems really interesting too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I wonder too, if they could, if they have, um, if they can see the onset of it like the ground response as it's happening and how uh, how mm. long it takes for the ground to depress and if they could use it then um you know as a predictive kind of tool uh to better understand how the ground might respond in future flood events but yeah oh yeah yeah i also think we should a nice yeah, I should also say that I was just chatting with an atmospheric scientist before this as well. So if, I sound, <laughs> if it sounds like um saying something that does not sound like a <laughs> seismologist would normally know, that might explain it.
1: <laughs> you're in good company, so.
2: Yeah, it's all right, yeah.
1: So we are- I, I think there could be some potential in this too for you know, you're talking about the instantaneous response, but using it as sort of a... Uh, a flood monitoring mm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: tool as well. If you could process the data fast enough, yeah. I know differential GPS is sort of complicated. Uh, yeah. But that would be something interesting. And it seems like something that, uh, you know, the, the engineers that are responsible for reservoir management mm-hmm. could really use as well.
2: Yeah. 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 And I mean, I feel too, if you could, you coupled with that though, you would need to be able to understand, you know, it's, it's a big difference if it's a um, linear response, like you add more water and more stuff happens versus if you add more water and it gets to a certain point and all of a sudden things really start to change a lot, the system starts to change. It'd be, so it'd be interesting if they can see that functionality or not. Is it
1: ever linear?
2: Probably not, but there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of things that we like to pretend are. Exactly. If you put it on just a log, log yeah. plot and step back. There you go.
0: Um, I thought one of the neat things coming out of this too, besides just, wow, this is cool that this happened, um, was the fact about using this for flooding assessments in terms of um, reservoir management. Mm-hmm. So helping, you know, dam managers know what to do so because you usually have all these effects that occur downstream right Um, Mm -hmm. and so you can you know let let a certain amount of water out and make sure you let enough out and all this stuff with enough time to mitigate some of those flooding potentials i thought that was kind of a cool application Mm -hmm. of this too
2: yeah
1: i'm also curious what the radio occultation signal in this in these data we're like because there's obviously a massive amount of moisture in the atmosphere which is doing a horrible things to the signals on their way to the receiver that have to be calibrated out uh so i'm sure there's some pretty fascinating atmospheric profile data in there as well and during hurricanes you know we really care about that upper part of the atmosphere that most of the time we just don't plot
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. They talk about that in their poster, too, which I guess I wish I could see the poster. I just see the abstract here um, about having to take out all the atmospheric loading effects and how I wonder how with these storms that are, you know, different than normal hurricanes, how well you can do that. Yeah, I don't know. Lots of, lots
1: of complicated processing. but
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we we're just saying, hopefully we don't have another hurricane that we can compare this to in the same place later on.
2: But yeah, <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah,
1: yeah, hopefully not. But uh, I don't know. This was a, a fascinating, fun paper. And if we can get a hold of the poster at any time, uh, I will try to come back and link it in the show notes because I would also be very interested in seeing it other than the Twitter screenshot (laughs) in the article. (laughs) Exactly. So Helen, did you happen to run into this at AGU?
2: You know, I unfortunately did not, you know, how AGU is always so crazy. It's, you know, too many things going on all at once, but I actually, I unfortunately can't remember the author's name, but, There was someone who was looking at um, not GPS data, but seismometer data related to tilt um, for monsoons in Taiwan. And if I can find the abstracts, I'll see if I can send you the link as well. But that was also what made me start thinking about um, yeah, using seismic data to observe this uh, influx of water in different locations and things like that. Um, So it's definitely seems like in these events that, you know, drop a lot of water that there are um, observations that can be linked to how the crust uh, responds to that water.
1: This seems like the perfect topic for Ralph Lorenz. Have you ever seen any of his work with different seismic data sets? No, I haven't. Uh, So it's somebody that we should actually interview on the show, but He's done a lot of fascinating things. He's written a book on Frisbees and boomerangs. Uh, He's got a paper out looking at tilt signals from broadband instruments and infrasound from dust devils. And (laughs) just all kinds of, this sounds like something that uh, I would expect to see something from him on as well. But, (laughs) uh, well, if listeners have their own fun paper We would be happy to discuss it. We are slowly working through the backlog because we have some very busy... (laughs) Listeners that uh, sent in some really great fun papers. But before we tell them how to do that, Helen, how can folks get a hold of you or keep up with your work?
2: Yeah, so I have a website, um, which will hopefully be linked, but it's helenyanishevsky.squarespace.com. And, but probably the easiest way to get a hold of me uh, for short information is on Twitter and my uh handle will also hopefully be linked but it's helen janice with the first half of my last name um yeah so that's probably the best way to get a hold of me for small casual things
1: (laughs) absolutely we will put all of that in the show notes and if folks want to get a hold of the show shannon how can they do that
0: Well, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, you can email us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com or come hang out in our Slack chat room, the software underground on the Don't Panic channel.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
0: It's not an
1: exact science.